0: Today's episode is brought to you by Freed Hardeman University. Are you a local minister? And these days, do you feel like you refer more and more members of your congregation to an outside agency or counselor? Do you feel like you would like to have the tools to be able to help some of those folks right there in your own office? Well, why don't you think about enrolling in the Master of Arts in Pastoral Care and Counseling program at Freed Hardeman University? This degree will give you the psychological and spiritual expertise to provide care and counseling from within your ministry context. You'll take courses in things like grief counseling, premarital counseling, suffering, and the human condition, psychopathology, and more. Maybe you have questions or maybe you have doubts about whether you can handle grad school. Well, Fried Hardiman can help, whether you're wondering about the cost or the time it will take to earn your master's degree. Here's a little good news to encourage you to keep exploring. You can complete the entire program online. And yes, scholarships are available even for you. So if you're a minister looking for more ways to care for the members of your congregation and their neighbors, or you know a minister like that, why not have a look at the Master of Arts in Pastoral Care and Counseling at Freed Hardeman University? Go to fhu.edu chronicle to learn more. That's fhu.edu chronicle, or click the link in the show notes. Freed Hardeman University, Master of Pastoral Care and Counseling, fhu.edu
1: slash chronicle. Now on with the show. And so better Christian politics enables us to endure loss, whether you're on the right or on your left. When you're going through this 2024, you should be like, I can endure this loss. If I side lose, whether on the right or the left, I can endure it. It might be hard. It might be tough, but I can endure it. Why? Because there is a final restoration to come. It is the resurrection. And that resurrection is both the resurrection of us individually in our bodies, but it is also the restoration of all things. It is Jesus' coming to bring his kingdom to repair all of the broken uh realities of our little petty human political kingdoms, Ooh. both on the right and on the left. And so that's our highest allegiance. That's the after party. That's the party to come that is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is what as Christians we are called to, we are called to place our highest allegiance and hope in, not Democrat or not Republican. So we can, whatever happens in this election, we can endure it. Welcome to the Christian Chronicle Podcast. We're bringing you the stories that are shaping Church of Christ congregations and members around the world. Here's our host, BT Irwin.
0: Family and friends, neighbors, and most of all, strangers, welcome to the Christian Chronicle Podcast. May what you are about to hear bless you and honor God. And if you're listening to this episode around its release date, January 3, 2024, Happy New Year to you and the people you love. Yeah, so 2024, anything big going on this year? Okay, okay, well, let's just get this out of the way. Here in the United States, this is a presidential election year, and it looks like it will be a 2020 rematch of Biden versus Trump. I bet that last sentence just raised the blood pressure and triggered the amygdala in just about every person listening to this. So yeah, uh, 2024, anyone feeling anxious, tense, worried? Well, now I know that woman who always sits on the third pew from the front over on the right, just pursed her lips and shook her head a little. And she's saying now BT Matthew 6, 25 and Philippians four, six say, don't be anxious about anything. And, you know, I can't argue with that. It's the Bible. But I confess, I feel anxious anyway. Knowing that I shouldn't feel anxious doesn't really help me to not feel anxious. Plus, what am I even supposed to do this election year? The hardest part isn't even really figuring out how to vote. It's figuring out how to be Christ-like. When even so many Christians may act so un-Christian, how are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to say? What if we get it wrong at the ballot box and in our communities and congregations? It feels like so much is at stake. Am I the only one who feels this way? Well, in case anyone else out there feels this same anxiety and worse, (laughs) we are happy to bring you our first guest of 2024. And we think he is someone who can help. Curtis Chang is an award-winning consultant and strategist in the nonprofit and public sectors. And when I say award-winning, I mean an award that the presidents of the United States conferred on him a few years ago. As a social strategist, he is a faculty member at American University's School of International Service. But I doubt those things matter as much to this audience as Curtis's other work. After his years as senior pastor for Evangelical Covenant Church in San Jose, California, he went on to become a consulting professor at Duke Divinity School, and a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He founded Redeeming Babel, a nonprofit organization that explores theological issues that are at the root of the chaos and confusion in our world today. He is the author of the book, The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. He'll tell us more about that in a moment. And as of this month, January 2024, he is collaborating with former Christian Chronicle podcast guest, David French, and Christianity Today Editor-in-Chief Russell Moore on The After Party, a curriculum they developed for Christians and churches to navigate this political moment in America. Curtis, Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh the standard first question whenever we have an author on the show is to ask them why they wrote their book. For you, your choice to write a book on anxiety was very personal. Would you tell us that story?
1: Sure. Uh it's because I am myself a sufferer of anxiety. In fact, anxiety ended my career as a pastor. So if mm-hmm. you you know, my bio, it's former senior pastor of an Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, but the former is because of anxiety. Um, I took over a large growing church and the pressure of it uh, overwhelmed me. And it overwhelmed me, especially because uh, I did not have the capacity to respond to anxiety, I think, in the way that actually God designed us, that I'd been conditioned uh, by my Christian Sort of, uh, you know, formation to view anxiety as solely a problem that mm-hmm. we should make go away, either pray it away, or if you can't pray it away, we all will we'll prescribe it away uh, through some other medication or therapy. And uh, by the way, I'm a fan of both medication and therapy, as well as I'm a fan of prayer. But the basic Christian understanding that predominated my Christian formation and I think still predominates many Christian traditions is that anxiety is solely a problem to make go away either by prayer or or by prescriptions. And what I discovered is that that one doesn't work usually and two is not actually the biblical model for how to respond to anxiety. And so that's why I wrote the book both out of that uh, a long journey of myself in in trying to come to terms with what happened, why did why was anxiety so devastating in my life, and then realizing that that was true more broadly, um, because it it when you are when you are anxiety is it is certainly not a pleasant experience yeah. um, by any means, but I think uh, we when it it is also uh, actually I think something far more profound and redemptive than simply a problem it is an opportunity for spiritual growth and that's why i wrote the anxiety opportunity because i wanted to reframe anxiety from simply being viewed as a problem that we make go away to actually an opportunity for some of our most deepest uh, spiritual growth we experience in life
0: i uh i i'm really excited to share a term that i think i learned from you uh, reading your stuff and listening to your stuff, and that's clobber texts. And you talk about that in the book, uh, Philippians chapter four, verse six, I think Matthew yeah. chapter six, verse 25. Yeah. Hey, don't be anxious about anything. That's the, the biblical command. Um, and yet um, you talk a little bit about in those chapters, why it might be okay uh, for Christians to be anxious to some degree or in some way. So how do you reinterpret those biblical texts um, especially through your own
1: personal journey with anxiety. Well, before I interpret it through my own personal journey, just let's interpret it in its own text form. So Philippians 4, six says, do not be anxious about anything. It's really important to think, what's the tone of that? Is it a finger-wagging tone that says, don't be anxious about anything, because if you're anxious, <laughs> you've done something wrong. Um, or is it like, hey, don't be anxious? Like, you know, is are we talking about something... That is a a sin, a failure, a falling, or is it an, a pastoral encouragement? Mm. And I think that, and uh, you probably can think about it if you're a parent. I mean, the tone of which you say something like that completely determines the meaning that your child yes. receives something like that, right? Yes. Uh, so the so why I believe it is misread um, as. As a scolding uh, condemnation, if you're if you're anxious, your sin is that Paul earlier in Philippians chapter three himself says, "I'm really anxious. I'm really anxious, and that's why I'm sending Epaphroditus uh, back to the Philippians." Uh, so it would be very odd. If Paul was saying anxiety is a terrible sin, don't you know you're you're st- you're wrong if you experience it. If just a few verses earlier he had just shared very vulnerably, like, "Hey, I'm really feeling anxious hmm. about how you know in in this situation with Epaphroditus." Um, so that's one way that clearly something else is going on here. When Paul is saying, "Don't be anxious," than a than a a condemnation tone, and then certainly when Jesus um, is that. You know, what people do not realize is that Jesus himself experienced anxiety. Mm. Read the passages in the Gethsemane. All of them go out of their way to describe Jesus as distressed, as sweating tears or even blood, as a troubled in spirit. All of the gospels, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke have that it locate that in Gethsemane. John locates it in chapter twelve, um, and in a different in a different because it doesn't for its own theological reasons. John doesn't include the Gethsemane passage, um, but all of them go out of their way to picture Jesus experiencing anxiety. And what that should tell us is that it's not a sin, but it's actually a part of the human condition. It's a part of the what you might call the just the the inevitable human. Uh, be, inhabiting a human body and a human life involves experiencing anxiety, not in a sinful way, but just in terms of the limitations of, of what it means to be human that Jesus fully took on onto his own very life um, is involved actually taking on the experience of anxiety as well. And so that should tell us anxiety is not a sin that we have to put away. If Jesus himself, Endured anxiety. He went through the experience of anxiety. If we are then followers of Jesus, made to to actually become more Christ-like, that path means that it also goes through anxiety, not away from it, not around it, but through it.
0: Well, that's interesting. Now, you um, uh, we probably ought to talk about what anxiety means. And uh, you actually put an equation. You wrote an equation in the book, yeah. and uh, I wasn't so great at equations in school, so I hope yeah. you'll uh, tutor all of us on this. Anxiety equals loss times avoidance. Yeah, anxiety equals loss times avoidance. What what does that mean?
1: So, what anxiety is in its essence is when we cont- it's the natural human emotion we will feel when we are facing the prospect of some loss. So think of any anxiety yet, financial anxiety, relational anxiety, performance anxiety, underneath that anxiety, that, that symptomatic feelings that you know, it's, it's being triggered by the prospect of something that you might lose. Your self-image in the case of performance anxiety or the well-regard of others, of mm. uh, your financial future, uh, some relationship you might lose. It's it's something it's not happening right now. It's happening, it's it can happen or likely to happen or could happen in the future. It's lo- and it's a loss. It's a loss of something that we value. So that's the anxiety equals loss point. Now, and that actually really gets to why ang- we can't view anxiety as a problem to make go away. Mm-hmm. Because if anxiety equals loss, and I, I really believe that is indisputable, right? Uh, that, 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 that's the prospect of loss that makes us feel anxious. Then when we say we should not feel anxious, what we're really saying is we should not experience loss, right? Wow. We should not experience loss wow. because if Jesus himself, when facing the prospect of the loss of all losses, mm-hmm. the loss of his life, of his friends, of even a, you know, so many valuable things that Jesus was under, uh, was about to lose, um, if Jesus Himself experienced anxiety in the face of loss, it just means it's a, it's part of the human condition, right? So this is why the second half of the equation is important: is because anxiety equals loss times avoidance. Because what happens? What when, when, if we are trying to avoid uh, something that is inevitable, something that is that just will happen, right? Yes. That's actually what ra- raises. That's what multiplies the experience of anxiety because we're trying to make go away. Something that we actually, at heart, in the bottom, cannot make go away. So we're trying to accomplish the unaccomplishable, and that's why anxiety has that feeling of the hamster running on a hamster wheel. Is because we we can't get there. We're looking for a, a scenario in which loss is avoided, but we can't ever get there. So, and people typically do this in in two ways. They'll they'll either avoid by pushing something away, so they'll avoid it. These are the avoiders, right? Like it's the It's the people who don't want to go to a doctor at all to get checked out because I I just want to avoid it, right? Don't talk about money. I don't want to talk about money because money, the thought of losing money makes me really anxious. So they they go away from it. But, you know, and they can never actually fully make it disappear. So they are constantly having to push it away, push it Mm -hmm. away, push it away. So that's one set of activities that ends up its own form of usually addictive practice, right? And even some cases where people will want to drink or take substances to make anxiety go away in fact you know if you study addiction the the field of addiction uh good treatments of anxiety almost always um uh, talk about you know how do you treat avoidance because and and substance abuse often is underlying it is people are trying it's- to actually deal with their anxieties right by pushing it away the other way that people try to avoid anxiety and which is more my way of doing it is by going around it like hmm. rumination. We just think about it over and over. We turn over a situation where we we rehearse it over and over in our mind. And what's going on? There, it sounds like we're dealing with that loss, but we're actually trying to make it go away. We're turning it, that scenario over and over in our mind thinking, if I just think hard enough about it, I will uncover this one way of thinking about it or this one plan of action or this one scenario where that possibility of loss goes away. Now, why do we get into rumination? It's because that possibility of loss, uh, that, the, that scenario in which loss is impossible, in which it disappears, it doesn't exist. It, loss is part of human life. And mm-hmm. so that's why we go around and around and around and we're stuck in it, we get sticky with it. So both, whether we go push it away or we think around and around and around and around it, those are all ways of avoidance. And when we engage in avoidance, avoidance of loss, That's what multiplies our experience of anxiety. That's when we get into a trap. And that's when really when anxiety, which like I said, is a, is really should be understood as a normal natural human reaction. That's when anxiety becomes an anxiety disorder. And and it's important to make that distinction, right? anxiety is the natural human reaction that we have to impending loss. Anxiety disorder is when we, we cannot actually hold that experience. We can't actually go through the experience. So we we're in all we go on all these avoidance moves that actually ratchets up our anxiety until it becomes dysfunctional. And I know that firsthand because like I said, that's what I was engaging in when I was a senior pastor. And my church was uh going through this was in the middle, this is in Silicon Valley and in the middle of the Silicon Valley um dot com bust. Mm-hmm. Uh so when, you know. Businesses were closing down. People were leaving. It was affecting our church. We were losing our numbers, losing our giving. I had to lay people, lay staff off. And I was just thinking over and over how do I think about it? How do I make a plan? How do I do contingency stuff such that this loss of both numbers in our church, finances in our church, and ultimately the loss of my self image. Yes. As a, as a successful, that was the the real loss at the heart of it. I was trying to make it. How if I just think hard enough about it, uh, I can come up with a scenario in which that loss is 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 disappears. I may go away, and I I, I couldn't. It didn't exist because that loss was there, and it, that's what caused me to just think and ruminate constantly, and then eventually couldn't sleep. Um, and I went through a two week period of insomnia, like where I don't remember consciously falling asleep at all. And that wow. just, if you know anything about mm-hmm. how important sleep is to health, going through two weeks without actual true sleep, it, it, it completely wrecked me and it ended my pastoral career. Like that's why I'm a former senior pastor. Yeah. Um, but I, I, that's it, what launched me. I am like, there's something wrong with how I'm, I am approaching anxiety, how I've been taught to think about anxiety and it took me about a 10 years to really put all the pieces together and realize, oh, fundamentally, we've been taught to approach anxiety in the wrong ways, in unbiblical ways.
0: You uh, you did something really interesting in the book, and I'd never thought of it before. And this may just build on what you shared. You compared anxiety to idolatry. You linked those two things. Like, So when I think of idolatry, I think of things like greed. Uh, you know, That might come to mind for a lot of people, uh, possessions, yeah. things. But you you connected anxiety and idolatry together. How? Tell us about that link. Okay,
1: so the first thing is I, it's not a one to one equation because yeah. it is not like all anxiety uh, underneath all anxiety is idolatry, but it could be. It could be. That's the po- message of Psalm one thirty nine when he when he asks God with a psalmist ask God, search me and know my heart, know my anxious thoughts, mm-hmm. see if there is any. And some translations say, see if there is any idolatrous way within me, all right? And so what the psalmist is saying, I need to be investigated. I need God to help me dig into, to search my anxious thoughts, because it's possible, not inevitable, not always, but it's possible that underneath that anxiety is some idolatrous way. And why is that? Well, again, let's go back and we realize that anxiety is about loss, right? Anxiety equals loss times avoidance. At the heart of Every idol is the promise that if you worship me, if you give your ultimate allegiance and trust to me, I, the idol will make that loss go away. Wow. That is the essence of every idol, right? Oh. This is why in the ancient world, when we had physical idols, we had a proliferation of all sorts of idols. When you go on a voyage, you sacrifice to this idol. When you get sick, you sacrifice, to, you sacrifice you to this idol. When you are about to start a new business, you sacrifice to that idol because the ancient world, like our uh, modern world, was afraid of loss. And so in their world, it's like, okay, what idol can save me from this loss and I will give my allegiance? I will sacrifice myself to it. So that's the connection is that the temptation then is because I want to avoid loss, that opens me up to the, to the risk, to the vulnerability of attaching myself to some idol that I begin to think that's what is going to insure me from loss. And in my book, I talk about my own experience during the pandemic of realizing that my own consulting firm that I had started after my, my pastoral career had blown up, had actually become my idol. That had been the thing that I was like, oh, that's going, going to ensure me from experiencing any loss. And this is why anxiety actually is this profound opportunity for spiritual growth, because it's a doorway into kind of our heart. And if we're willing to let God investigate, like Psalm 139 says, search at my anxious thoughts, know my anxious thoughts, it's possible they may, that that process may unveil, oh my gosh, this is why I'm so anxious about losing my job. I have turned my job or my finances or my savings or something like that into an idol, into something that I think will save me from loss. And I need to rethink how I approach loss of, you know, so.
0: I feel like you've got the, the theological chops to answer this question. We, when we think of idolatry, I think Christians may tend to think of, of things, like I said, things outside of Christianity. Is it possible to make our own God, our own perceptions of God,
1: or good things like the church, is it possible to make those things into idols? Hundred percent, absolutely right. So, uh, what is a, another term that the the Bible uses for idols? Is a false image, right? Mm-hmm. That's another term for use it. So, so if we have a false image of God, then we are making, in a funny way, an idol of our our picture of God. Not we're not even an idol of God Himself in reality. we we're making an idol of a false image, a false perception we have with God, and this actually comes into play with how Christians approach anxiety, because again, let's remember anxiety equals loss times avoidance. There is a a strong uh, current in various Christian traditions that deep down, we think God is out that the purpose of God is to insure us from experiencing any loss. Yes. Lives. So yes, the most obvious is that this is in prosperity gospel, but actually, I would say, even not in the Pentecostal true p- prosperity gospel, it has affected practically every Christian tradition in some way. That we have we have come to believe that God is like some cosmic insurance scheme, that Christianity is some cosmic insurance scheme that if we just believe in God bad things won't happen to us, right. that, that, that loss, we will not experience loss, right? And that is false. God has never promised that. In mm-hmm. fact, the very life of Jesus shows how opposite that is because what did, was the end of Jesus' life? It was loss. He died. He experienced the loss of all losses. He was not saved, and he refused to accept, you know, the Satan's temptation, to, which was all about avoiding loss, right? Um, he refused that because it's like, I have to go through loss. That's what it means to be human and to be even God in human flesh is to experience loss. So that should tell us that this notion we have God, that God exists so that we won't experience loss is a false image of God. And it's so important to identify that because if we end up believing God exists to save me from loss, and we pray to him and we you know go to do all the right things and, and that doesn't happen mm-hmm. which every christian will eventually experience that yes. like every christian will experience that that you will pray to god to avoid some loss understandably like of course you want god like i don't want to get sick i don't want this person to die i don't want to lose this job i don't want to get a bad grade and, but it happens like any uh, christian who has lived any, you know, amount of time, um, if they're honest with themselves, knows they have experienced exactly what I'm talking about. Right. So if we really cling to this notion, God exists to save me from experiencing the loss, and then God doesn't do that. Well, then what what do we do with that? Then for some people, it's like, well, then God must not, we have two options. We either think God doesn't exist, or God is not trustworthy, or God is a sadist right? Or God's not true to his word, even though he never made that promise, Uh, but we falsely ascribe that promise to him. So we we then reject God or we can't do that. We got to hang on to God. Then we turn inward. Then we think, oh, I must have done something wrong. I didn't pray hard enough. I didn't have enough faith. I didn't you know, and then we turn Christianity into superstition, right? That's what superstition is. It's like I have to do the right things to get the right outcomes from the invisible gods out there, um, and and so that's how off we get when we make a false image of God as the grand loss avoider for, mm-hmm. insurer in the sky for us. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. The promise of the gospel is not. If you follow Jesus, you will be insured from loss uh, in your life. It's quite the opposite. Jesus yep. says, you must take up your cross and follow me. you 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 must die <laughs> that right yeah, so so this is why anxiety actually is such a profound opportunity for spiritual growth why I call it the anxiety opportunity because anxiety exposes, our false images, are false beliefs about God. If we're, if we're willing to go through it with, yes. I, I, with Jesus, right? And in the spirit. Um, and it, it forces us to say, oh, wait a minute. What What is the right? What is the promise of God? How does God, what is God's true word revealed in Jesus, in the life and the words of Jesus? What is God's actual promise when it comes to loss? And it turns out it is not avoidance. It is not avoidance. It's something else. Well, let me
0: set you. I think you may answer this question now. Uh, you have this really weird custom that you do with your daughters. I think on their birthdays, you write yeah. about it quite a bit in the book. Uh, tell tell our audience what is that weird custom on their birthdays. Why do you do it and how does it relate to what we're talking about right now? Sure. So you're
1: talking about the the challenge, the, the challenge. Chang family yes, that's challenge. That's so, uh, you know, if we throw a birthday party, you know, you have this big bucket of ice that you've put in to put all the cold drinks in. And then, you know, at the end of the party, the ice is melt. So you've got this or, or it's melting. So you've got this super cold bucket of, of, uh, of water And so with my youngest daughter, we have the challenge and the challenge is where both of us square off and we plunge, we roll up our sleeves and we plunge our arms fully into the bucket and we see who can hold on for the longest. So the first person to pull out from the ice bucket loses, right? The person who can endure, who can hold on to that experience is the winner of the challenge. And the reason I write about it is because I actually think that is a great, for me, picture of the Christian promise, of the true Christian promise. Because when you are put your hands through that, in that ice bucket, you experience loss. You experience the loss of feeling in your arm. You, you experience the loss of comfort. It's excruciating. Um, but if you can hold on and you believe, you know what, I'm losing feeling in my arm, but this doesn't mean I'm losing my arm permanently. I'm just losing feeling in my arm. And, and if I can hold on through that feeling, actually you get to this period of like, Restoration, because it actually—that's why you have ice baths for recovering athletes. Because if you can hold on to that initial shock and pain, it becomes restoration. And then, if when you finally pull out your arm, the feeling fully returns—you know, the numbness goes away. So that's actually the picture of the Christian uh, vision, uh, I think, of anxiety and of loss. It's not that we we avoid it. It's actually we endure it, we suffer it, we experience it believing it's not the end. This experience is not the final story. There is restoration on the other side of it. And that restoration goes by the name of resurrection, yes. right? That's what resurrection is. Resurrection is the, is the heart of the promise of the gospel, but resurrection is not loss avoidance. You only get to resurrection through death. Yes. That's the definition of resurrection, right? So you have to go through loss in order to get restoration from your loss. It's not going away or around it. It's going through it. And so just like, and you you have to develop the spiritual practices and the faith to hold on, to kind of keep your arms in the bucket, even when it's numb, painful, you feel like you're losing everything, believing that on the other side, Jesus' resurrection will prevail in the end. That really is the heart of the Christian response to anxiety. It's not anxiety equals loss times avoidance, even a God baptized, a God, you know, colored, painted uh, avoidance mechanism. It's what I call uh, a different formula. It's the resurrection formula, which is anxiety equals loss divided by holding divided by holding mm-hmm. and holding is when we can hold on when we can, when we have the faith to endure this because we believe in the resurrection. And the more, if you think about it mathematically, it, the holding is in the uh, denominator position. So the more we can develop our holding muscles, our holding uh, sort of uh, abilities, cap- capacities, then actually uh, the loss, the, the, the sting of the loss it still be there because it's still lost. We're still going to feel it. But the sting of it gets divided. It goes down. It it goes down exponentially, right? And our anxiety levels then go down exponentially. It doesn't go away. It's not like it ever disappears. But But its power of it goes down and the level of it goes down. The more we can develop our practices of holding loss, not avoiding it, holding the loss hmm. it, holding the loss of ultimately in the power of the resurrection but that that means it that means we suffer it we endure it we grieve it we experience it we share it with others we go through it not away 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 from it or around it I I want to ask
0: you one more question about uh, the book before we talk about the after party and, and I want everybody to go out and buy the book and read it. It's a good one. And we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, You talk about some of those holding practices near the end. So could you give us an example or two of, of a holding practice? That is a term that you use in the book.
1: Well, there's three that I really uh, talk about Uh, prayer, grieving, and actually like, Right theology, which is actually an important holding practice. So I'll work backwards from there. So the right theology is really understanding truly what the resurrection is, that it is a, truly a restoration of, of bodily, experiential, earthly, earthy things we fear losing. You know, that's the promise of the gospel. It's not that we go away to heaven in some disembodied form and float away in soul as as disembodied souls that's not restoration. That doesn't give us back what we lose. It's it's something else. It's it's at best a picture of the interim state between death and resurrection. True biblical promise and hope is the restoration of things, bo- people, experiences, our body that we have lost. It's a bodily experience. So one good theology is we, we need to hold on to good theology. And my book tries to uh, outline that for us. Um, then the other two are are uh, more even less heady, I suppose, more practical, uh, which is prayer and grieving. So prayer is crucial. Jesus modeled that when he was experiencing anxiety, he was in Gethsemane. And what was he doing? He was praying. All right, so we So then my book talks about ways that we can engage in specific kinds of prayer that build our ability to hold loss, to endure loss. But now the other, when you go back to Jesus in Gethsemane, was Jesus praying alone? Or let's put it this way. Actually ask, did Jesus want to pray alone? And the answer is actually no. He wanted his disciples to be there. And he said, stay here with me and pray with me. Because Jesus himself was saying, "I, I do not want to. And in fact, I'm not really human beings. And I'm a true human being here. We're not actually designed to hold loss alone. We're actually designed to hold loss with others and that's what Jesus wanted to go through. Now it turns out his disciples failed. He couldn't they couldn't stay awake with him. But it that just even further signals ugh, how much even God himself in the form mm-hmm. of Jesus uh wanted to go through his loss with others. And so and that's really a lot of what grieving is. Grieving is Feeling and experiencing the loss, both by ourselves, we can grieve ourselves alone. But especially in community with others, you know, grieving is was really meant to be, uh, and was certainly true in the biblical days, a collective human experience. And that's a lot of the problem uh, that we have in the church right now is we do have not designed enough ways for people to grieve their losses together. Like just think about death, right? We have the funeral and memorial service. we uh, And we we have the script for that. But then after that, everybody gets really like individualized, weird, avoidant, uh, like, you know, like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do because we don't, haven't been given scripts. We haven't given practices for how do we relate to each other when we've experienced losses? Like other, frankly, other religious traditions have done a better job of this than, than the modern Christian tradition. So
0: That's true. All right, well, I bet that a lot of people right now are very anxious about this year, 2024, because we have a presidential election uh, coming up in this country. In fact, we had a a Landon Saunders. I don't know if you uh, remember Landon Saunders. He died recently. And uh, one of the things he said was he wasn't necessarily looking forward to death, but he was looking forward to missing the
1: 2024.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Uh, What can you do? What can you tell us, Curtis, about how to uh, calm our anxieties in 2024? And specifically, uh, what I really want to ask you is about um, the after party project that you've been working on uh, with David French. He told us a little bit about that when he was on the show a few months ago. And uh, Russell Moore, what is it and what do you hope it accomplishes?
1: So, the after party project, which is again, I'm leading with David French and Russell Moore, is trying to equip Christians towards better Christian politics mm. towards better Christian politics. Cause we believe Christian politics, both on the left and the right right now have are, are misformed are, are misformed themselves. They're not properly reflecting. I think the biblical uh, emphasis and and uh, uh, on politics and are misforming our people. Mm. Right. So uh, so the after party is trying to move us back towards better Christian politics Uh, I'll say a little bit of the substance of it in a moment, but the format of it is most initially a six-session small group curriculum that, that small groups, Bible studies, prayer groups, with your family, whatever, but some small group of people can go through together. Because we think that's actually the most healthy way for us to actually address politics. It's not on a Sunday morning service or anything like that. It's in small group communities where there's back and forth conversation with people we know that we're in relationship with uh, that we can actually talk about these things. And the small group, the after party curriculum provides a framework, some language, some biblical teaching to actually provide the context for these small group conversations with one another about how do we have our politics reflect uh, the highest allegiance, which is not Republican or Democrat, it's Jesus. Hmm. Right, And so, so that's the, what we're trying to do. I mean, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with alpha as the program, the, the alpha program, yes. right? So maybe one way to think about it is what alpha did for evangelism, the after party wants to do for politics. So wow. just like if you if any pastor or any church if there's like ah we're not doing so well on evangelism you can't just throw up your hands and say well there's nothing to do we can't we don't know what to do it's like minimally you can run alpha you just need to get one small group together and just have just run alpha and get it, get some folks who care about sharing the gospel get some people who are interested in the gospel and then alpha provides the context and the language and framework for that conversation to happen in a safe open exploratory fashion we're trying to replicate that with politics, right? So we want to be the alpha of politics and provide that curriculum. Uh, now, people might be asking, "Well, what's your message? Why are you are you saying? You know, is this a progressive or conservative uh, substance?" The fact that people, so many people, immediately ask that question hmm. is precisely what we're trying to point really? out. Is why we're we're off, right? Because what that shows is that we have so been overwhelmingly conditioned to approach politics from the what of politics, from the what of politics. And by that, I mean ideology, party, and policy. We think politics is having the right ideology, the right party, and the right politics. So when we think Christian politics, it means Christian politics must be matching up to the right conservative or progressive ideology, to the Republican or Democratic party, and to this policy versus that policy on immigration, abortion, the death penalty, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? That's a very narrow and constricted definition of politics, to, to focus so exclusively on the what of politics. Because politics, it's not that politics is, it doesn't care about the what, but politics is as much, and probably I would and actually I would say more about the how. Mm. The how of politics, the how of politics is really about how do we relate to one another? How do we hold on to our beliefs? How do we treat differences? How do we treat people who are uh, who think differently than us? Um, how do we feel how do we hold our anxieties <laughs> around politics? There's so much about how that are about political matters, right? And so one way to contrast it is the what is about ideology, the how is about spiritual values. Mm. the what is about party the how is about relationships like actual relationships the what is about policies the how is about practices things that we do and once you shift the conversation about politics and the emphasis on politics from the what to the how several great things happen first of all you get closer to jesus because and why by that i mean is look at the teachings of jesus read the sermon on the mount If you try to draw from Jesus' teaching and words on Sermon on the Mount to a specific what, to a specific ideology, party, or policy, you can do that, but it's a fuzzy, long, convoluted line that is going to be that is contested. It's not slam dunked, right? Show me, you know. Oh yeah, chapter and verse. This shows you why we ought to have, you know, why we need to build the wall or why we need to have more looser immigration uh, rules. It's, you don't get there. Like, it's not a straight line. All right. Uh, doesn't mean you can't try to draw the line. But but that is not, you're not getting closer to Jesus' words by anchoring on an ideology, on a party or a policy. But there's a plenty there about the how. There's mm-hmm. plenty there about forgive your enemies. Go the extra mile. Love truth. Be merciful. You know, as your father is in heaven is merciful. Hump about humility, about the being a servant of others. Those are our how virtues. And those are actually where Jesus teaches much more clearly, unambiguously, where you can draw a very straight line to spiritual values, to relate how you are in relationships, and to, to practices in those relationships. So we've gotten it all backwards. We and and it's gotten it so backwards that now we have certain, you know, strong streams within Christianity that are willing to actually sacrifice and chuck and and throw out Jesus-centered how in order to win on the what. Like, I won't be kind to my opponent. I won't be forgiving. I won't be merciful. Um, I will be be out for power because I want to win on the what. And we've got it completely backward. Jesus cared much more about the how than the what. If you locate Jesus back into first century uh, politics, palace politics in Israel— uh, there were raging ideological, partisan, and policy divisions. Jesus refused to get drawn into mm-hmm. any of those divisions, right? And when he, when people tried to pin him down, he found a clever way to get around, to, 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 to actually get out of that trap, like the Roman policy of taxation. Jesus' response to that is a classic case of you're asking this question in all the wrong ways, right? He does not play by the rules of the what. He, he's constantly shifting people I've got a higher how of politics that is centered around me. And if you want to be, have your highest allegiance, your highest political allegiance to Jesus, not a human party, not a human ideology, not a human constructed set of policies, then it means you're gonna, your politics are going to look very different. It's going to be more concerned about the how. And the beauty then is not only do you get closer to Jesus, but you can actually get closer to other people. Because when you anchor your politics on the what, you immediately are pitted in, in into division, into conflict. Right? It's oh, your what of ideology is conservative, mine is progressive. Your what is this party? You know, mine is this party. It, by definition, you are you are you are getting further away from a whole set of other people who share a different set of whats on politics. But people who share a different set of whats on politics can share and be committed to the exact same how of. A, you can both be disagree and on the what's, but you can still des- desire to love one another, which is the highest commandment. You can still choose to forgive your enemies, which is each other, which is what Jesus died for on the cross to die in forgiving his enemies, right? You can still be both of you can be humble. You can both think, I think this, I think that, but I could be wrong, right? And the humility as a core Christian. Uh, spiritual value, right? We can still have hope for the future and not get so locked up into our anxieties. Why? Because we're we're committed to Jesus as our highest allegiance, not to our side winning. Uh, and so, this is what the after party is trying to do. We're trying to promote this big shift in Christian politics from the what to the how, which is the how of Jesus.
0: Wow, I how uh, I have so many questions, but we only have time for one or two how do you uh, plan to overcome the inertia of, you know, I think two things in particular Uh, one is I feel like the appetite people have been worked up so much over the last few years. Um, There may be more for those who aren't exhausted. The appetite may be more for um, aggression, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Aggression. And then two, one of the things that surprised me on this program We try uh, really hard to make all of our guests very safe for our audience because our audience covers a wide variety of people, you know, all around the world. And it surprises me sometimes when we had David French on the show, uh, I I thought David was a safe guest. But we got more backlash. Oh no, David! Not, <laughs> from, not from a majority of people, but they're yeah, from you know, the minority, cause... right? Who are partisans,
1: right? Because yeah. because if you're a partisan, especially a partisan on the right, um, you're highly committed to your what of yeah. your party. You will view somebody like David as like because he's because he's not. He's given up. He's repented. Of his partisan loyalty as his highest loyalty, and you know nobody hates uh, nobody is more hated than somebody who uh, kind of defects right. from your, your original loyalties. Right. Well, um, how do we overcome that uh,
0: that inertia that, to to earn the trust of people and lead them toward that appetite for? Well,
1: well, I actually think they're, they're so. Let's be really clear: who the target audience of the after party is for. We are not uh, trying to persuade or and convince. Those people who are have already planted their flag squarely on the extremes. That's mm-hmm. not our target audience. Our target is precisely the exhausted majority, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the studies show there is a, a majority of Americans and a majority of Christians who are like tired of the extremes and uh, the fact that the extremes have hijacked our political life and are forcing everybody into one of their polar um, options. And we believe there's actually quite a hunger for a different way of approaching politics than, than, that, than the, the oppositional what on the extremes. And so we this after party is meant to give people who are still in that middle, I don't mean middle like moderate, squishy middle, but I mean people who are like exhausted by the polarized divides. And they may have their beliefs About you know on their political beliefs, but they don't. They know there's something wrong when we elevate it to the highest allegiance of all things, such that we're willing to sacrifice basic Christian commands of love, kindness, mercy, humility, honesty, you know, uh, and truth, and all that. Um, And I, I think there's a this response we're getting is people are like, "Oh my gosh, we've been waiting for this because we just haven't articulated yet." that the Jesus centered view of politics is not this current version of polarized polarization around div, uh, oppositional what's Uh last question on this. I feel like the challenge that so many
0: people have is that the whole world has become this binary choice. Yes. And people don't know how to get out of that binary choice. They just yes. can't even figure out a different way to live.
1: Yeah. Um, so it sounds the, good, like- the good news mm-hmm. is Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. The good news is Jesus has shown that way because he entered first century Israel in a binary, polarized, uh, and we we write about we talk about this in the course. Uh, I write about even more about this in the book uh, that's coming out in April on the After Party. Jesus entered a polarized political situation that that puts ours that makes ours look like kumbaya. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so uh, because they were slaughtering each other uh, yeah. just a couple uh, just you know one within one generation they were in out out war on these two sides and so jesus this is no polarized uh this the situation that we're in is no stranger to jesus the, the jesus and the gospel are designed to actually heal a situation like that yeah. so the, the 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 playbook is there we just need to actually be willing to submit to jesus and obey it and repent like David has, repent of having our highest allegiances to our existing party or ideology or set of policies. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm confident, I'm hopeful that that uh, for those who have ears to hear and who have been waiting for this, they will f- realize there's a way out of this. Um, and, it's, it is the, it is, and this is why um, we call our project The After Party, Because it is is meant to be, hey, there's got to be something that comes after the current party divides, the current ways in which the party divides define everything. So that's why we call it the after party. But it also has a double meaning because the after party also points to where all of this is headed which is the wedding feast of the Lamb, the grand feast at the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 2 and 35 and you know, uh, 40 to, 50, 40 to 60, 66 all is a picture of. It is, the, it is the return of the King, the true ruler, the true Lord of all, right? Who is going to come back and restore all things, restore all that has been broken. And we don't know when that's going to happen but it is going to dwarf any little puny human presidential election we have. So whatever happens in 2024 in this election, we know there is an event that's coming that can repair whatever damage that this election. And even if this means our country gets fractured and broken apart, even if America goes down and whatever, whichever your partisan versions of this country going down, nations rise, nations fall. The, the kingdom of God outlast them all. Yes. And the kingdom of God will return to this earth headed by Jesus to repair all things. Once again, this is what enables us to endure loss. We have to be able to endure loss to tie it back to anxiety. We have to be able to endure loss to be able to be, to have truly healthy politics of any sort. Uh, It's true in any case, but because the nature of politics, especially American democracy is that you have to be able to endure loss. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental to democracy. Yeah. Uh, democracy is built so that both sides or all sides can endure loss because you know it's not permanent. You can, it's, there'll be a next election. You can, you know, uh, it's losers. And this is why losers' consent is in some ways the definition of democracy. The classic political theorists will tell you, what is democracy? It's when losers consent to the loss, right? Um, which is exactly why, Christian participation on January 6, 2021 was the rejection of the notion that law that that you can tolerate loss. It was a rejection of of the ability to hold loss. It's like no, we can't possibly have lost. So it says that you believe in the lies of January 6 and you and you participate in an effort to overturn A true legitimate loss. And and people may, if people have gotten so swept into conspiracy theory that they don't realize that's what's happening, that is what happened. And so better Christian politics enables us to endure loss, whether you're on the right or on your left. When you're going through this 2024, you should be like, I can endure this loss. If I side loses, whether on the right or the left, I can endure it. It might be hard, it might be tough, but I can endure it. Why? Because there is a final restoration to come. It is the resurrection. And that resurrection is both the resurrection of us individually in our bodies, but it is also the restoration of all things. It is Jesus coming to bring his kingdom to repair all of the broken uh, realities of our little petty human political kingdoms, both on the right and on the left. And so that's our highest allegiance. That's the after party. That's the party to come. That is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is what, as Christians, we are called to. We are called to place our highest allegiance and hope in, not Democrat or not Republican. So we can, whatever happens in this election, it, it, we can endure it. We can go through it.
0: Let us stand and sing. Curtis Chang Mm -hmm. is author of The Anxiety Opportunity and a collaborator with David French and Russell Moore on The After Party. If you are anxious or exhausted, dear listener, we will put links to both of those in the show notes. Curtis, thank you for making time to start the new year with us. May God bless
1: you and make your work fruitful this year. Thank you so much. And thank you for this privilege. Really do invite people who have listened and and who are interested to come check out our work. You can do so at afterparty.org, after-party.org, and learn more how you can uh, join the afterparty.
0: Looking forward to it. Thank you, Curtis. God bless. All right.
1: Well, we're off and running in
0: 2024. Thank you for listening. We do this show to inform and inspire you. And not much inspires us more than knowing that you are part of this show. So thank you so much. Thank you once again to Curtis Chang for being our special guest today. We pray that God blessed you through what you heard. If you received that blessing and you want to pass it on, please pray for this ministry and do a few things. Subscribe to this podcast and then share it with a friend recommend, and review it on whatever podcast service you use, and send us comments, ideas, and suggestions at podcastchristianchronicle.org. And if you feel fuller and richer because of something you heard today, please pay it forward. Make a tax-deductible gift to the Christian Chronicle. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to christianchronicle.org slash donate to make your gift now. Until next time, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. The Christian Chronicle podcast is a production of the Christian Chronicle Incorporated, informing and inspiring Church of Christ congregations and members around the world since 1943. The
1: Christian Chronicle's associate editor is Audrey Jackson, editor-in-chief Bobby Ross Jr., and president and CEO Eric Trigestad. The Christian Chronicle podcast is produced, written, directed, and hosted by B.T. Irwin and is recorded, edited, and engineered by James Flanagan at Podcast Your Voice Studios in Southfield, Michigan, Detroit, USA.